Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Good morning again. Welcome again to Worship with Garfield Memorial Church. If you haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Scott Blevins. I'm one of the pa- part of the pastoral team here at Garfield Memorial Church. There at Garfield Memorial Church, wherever you are this morning. Uh, good to be with you today. We're continuing our series this morning in spiritual PPE, personal protection equipment. And as Pastor Chip said, today is going to be all about the breastplate of righteousness. The first few weeks, uh, Pastor Chip outlined for us and gave us a, a, a very good picture of what we're up against. And since then, we've been talking about what we can do about it. We did an overview of the armor of God, the spiritual PPE. Last week, Pastor Chip uh, gave us a real close look at the belt of truth. This week, we're focusing on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I'd be willing to bet that almost everybody watching today or any other day that's watching this, uh, I'm, I'm betting I'm betting you've got a belt. I'm betting you don't have a breastplate unless you happen to be in law enforcement and you have some sort of uh, bulletproof vest uh, or in the military. But most of us don't have that. So we're going to be talking a little bit about what breastplates are, what they do, what they protect, what does righteousness have to do with all of this. But before we get into any of that, I want us to take a moment and pray a prayer of righteousness. This prayer was first prayed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. all the way back in 1953. It was part of a radio series he was doing uh, during the summer of 53 when he was at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. So as we launch into this message today, let's pray together. Our loving Father, from thy hand have come all the days of the past. To thee we look for whatever good the future holds. We are not satisfied with the world as we have found it. It is too little the kingdom of God as yet. Grant us the privilege of being a part of its regeneration. We are looking for a new earth in which dwells righteousness. It is our prayer that we may be children of light, the kind of people for whose coming and ministry the world is waiting. Amen. 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 May we be the kind of people, may this world be filled with righteousness and the righteousness of God. Righteousness, that's one of those, one of those $50 church words that we don't hear in a lot of other places unless you're into old music and enjoy the Righteous Brothers, but that's even a little bit different. What is righteousness? What does this have to do with breastplates? And what does it have to do with the world not yet being as we wish it were, with the world not yet being the kingdom of God and all of its fullness. We're going to talk about that this morning as we go in here. And I want to begin talking about it because we're dealing with some pretty abstract concepts here. I want to begin with a story. 
And it's a true story. I'm not going to give you the exact location and details uh, because it's not all my story and it's not an entirely positive story. And I'm not here today to throw mud or sling dirt at anyone. But I want to begin with the story. And it's a story about a group of physicians in a medical group practice that's a long way from Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm not talking about university hospitals, not talking about Cleveland Clinic, not talking about any of the hospitals up here. But it was at one point the second largest privately owned group practice in the state of Ohio. And it served in an area which was one of the highest poverty areas, in fact, the highest poverty area in the state of Ohio. And the story I'm going to tell, it starts all the way back in the 1970s. And I got this account firsthand from one of the chief administrators in that organization at the time. And he told me about this. And and it was extraordinary when I first heard it years ago. And it strikes me as being even more extraordinary today. You see, back then, as today, medical costs were going up. And this particular group practice, this clinic, um, they were struggling to make ends meet as they were serving in this community that had a very, very high poverty rate. And so the administrators decided that one of the things they needed to do in order to keep the organization solvent was to raise the cost of office visits for all patients. Now get this, this was back in the 70s. They were going to raise the cost from $25 a visit to $30 a visit. My, how things have changed. A $5 increase of, what is that, a, a 25% increase. And, and, and the doctors, particularly the pediatricians, got together to talk to the administrators about this. And what do you think they went to them and said? Let me tell you, because I don't think you're going to guess. These doctors went to the administrators and said, our patients can't afford $30 a visit. Is there any way we can keep the price the same? Or if we have to increase it, can we increase it by less than $5? The administrators talked about it. They heard it. They received it. They ultimately did raise the price, but instead of going from $25 to $30, they went from $25 to $28. What happened in that situation? What happened in that situation was an expression of a living out of the righteousness of God. These doctors used their position of wealth and privilege and power to approach the administrators and secure a benefit and a blessing for the most vulnerable people in that community. That's righteousness. That's a concrete example. We're going to come back to that story in a little bit, but I want us to start with that image in our mind as we look at what righteousness is. At its root, um, righteousness actually began as, as a very concrete idea. And, and it has its roots in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, evil is often talked about in contrast to righteousness. And evil is often talked about in straying off the path that God has set for us. And then righteousness is set in contrast to that. So righteousness at its root is this. It's steadfastly following the way of God steadfastly following the way of God. That's what righteousness is. I think if there's one verse in the entire scripture that summarizes the concept of righteousness, it's Micah 6.8. And the prophet in Micah 6.8 says this, what does Yahweh, what does our God, what is the God who rescued us from the land of Egypt, the God who gave life and fullness and creation to all the earth, the God who, who reached down into the dirt and fashioned human beings and breathed his own breath into us and called us 
into living beings made in his righteousness. What does this God require of us? And what does God require of us, according to Micah? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. That is righteousness. The third one is the first. It's the highest priority. Walk humbly with your God. The second one, love kindness. That's about our interpersonal relationships. It's no accident that much of the letter of Ephesians that Paul has written where we've been reading about the armor of God, the spiritual PPE, much of it is about how do we live out our interpersonal relationships? How can husbands and wives relate to each other in a way that's walking after God? How can parents and children relate? How can people in authority over others relate to those in authority under them and people under authority relate to those in authority above them? All of those interpersonal relationships are about righteousness, about living those relationships out in God's way. Micah calls it loving kindness. Now, the interesting thing is he doesn't say do kindness. He said do justice. He didn't say do kindness. He said love kindness. Because if you love kindness, if you love kindness, then you're going to be looking for opportunities to do kindness wherever you can. And it won't be dependent upon how that other person is treating you. Even if they're treating you badly, if you love kindness, you're going to, man, this is a great opportunity for me to be kind. We can love kindness in our interpersonal relationships. And that's part of walking humbly with our God. The first one is do justice. That's the big picture. Interpersonal relationships is that focused in, that, that, that near view, the large view, the wide view is doing justice. That's about culture. That's about systems. That's about business and politics and technology and how we relate to each other across communities and cities and states and countries in the world. It's about how the rich and the powerful and the privileged treat the poor and the helpless and the vulnerable. That's justice. That's justice. And that's part of righteousness as well. In fact, the Greek word for righteousness, dikaiosune, comes from the Greek word for justice, dike. Often in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters, dikaiosune is translated as justification, to be made just, to be justified. Righteousness is about that as well. Now, that's righteousness. What does it have to do with the heart? What is it? Well, we don't even talk about hearts yet. What does it have to do with breastplate? Because a breastplate covers the chest. It covers this part of your body, which in its primary purpose is to protect the heart. It's to protect the heart. So righteousness has something deeply significant to do with the heart, particularly the heart as Paul and the folks in Paul's culture and place and time and age understood the heart and what the heart is and what the heart does and why our heart is there and what it has to do with righteousness. So the heart in Paul's day, and our day, you know, we, we tend to be very concrete in some ways as well. And we tend to think of things in in a post-enlightenment world in biological terms. And so the heart, most of us, the first thing we're going to say about a heart, it's that organ in our body that pumps our blood. We can't live without it. That's our heart. That was a meaning in Paul's day too. The heart was the central life-giving organ of the body. But that's not how it was most often used. We use heart in other ways as well, primarily to talk about emotions. And we'll talk about pulling on people's heartstrings or someone that's led by their heart instead of by their head. Uh, people that, that, that are driven by emotion and emotional reaction. And the heart is the seat of emotions. That was true in Paul's day as well. 
The heart was the seat of emotions. But the heart was also, the heart was also, get this, the seat of thought and understanding in Paul's day. Our thoughts originated in our heart. It wasn't just thought and understanding, and it wasn't just emotions. It's also the seat of our desires, the things we long for, the things we yearn for, the things we, we, we lust after originate in our heart. It was also the seat of our will. It's where we make decisions in our heart. And it's the seat of our religious spiritual life. It's where our connection with God and, and, and others in a community of faith comes from. It comes from our heart. Now, don't get caught up in the biology here. Don't worry about that. We're not trying to find here the physical location of spiritual and relational things. What's important to understand is that in Paul's day and age, people understood the heart as being the origin and the center of our thought life, our emotional life, our longings and desires, our will, and our relationship with God and others in a community of faith. All of these coming from the heart. The important thing to take from all of this is what Paul says protects the heart. And what he says protects the heart is righteousness. What protects our desires from becoming corrupted is righteousness. What protects our thinking from becoming distorted is righteousness. What protects our emotions from becoming um, tyrannical is righteousness. What protects our will from leading us astray is righteousness. It's righteousness. It's walking humbly with our God. I'm going to give you an example I love this example. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me for just a moment because in, in just a moment, Pastor Chip is going to throw something hard and sharp at me. I'm confident of it because uh, in contrast to Pastor Chip, I believe that the greatest superhero movie ever made is The Dark Knight in the Christopher Nolan Batman series. I'm going to duck. I'm going to, I'm going to bob. I'm going to weave. Uh, Pastor Chip is, is, is groaning back here. I am getting thumbs up from Dave Jezik in the back of the house, though. The Dark Knight series, one of the key figures in the Dark Knight series is, uh, the Dark Knight movie is um, Harvey Dent, who is portrayed at the beginning of the movie quite intentionally as a righteous district attorney in the corrupt city of Gotham. He's there to take on the bad guys. He's going to bring them down at no matter what the cost. He is loving kindness. He is seeking justice and doing justice. And at the opening, one of the opening scenes of the movie, Harvey Dent is questioning an accused member of the criminal underworld in Gotham. And while he's in trial and while he's questioning him in the courtroom, someone else stands up and pulls out a gun and tries to shoot Harvey Dent for coming after the crime lords. And Harvey Dent grabs the guy, he disarms him, he takes the gun apart, he throws the parts down on the ground. Everyone's in an uproar. The judge is pounding his gavel and says, all right, we're going to take a recess and come back next week or tomorrow. And Harvey Dent says, wait, your honor, I'm not done with this witness. That's righteousness. At great cost, at great risk to himself, Harvey Dent is pursuing justice. He's loving kindness. He's walking steadfastly on that path. And nothing, nothing is going to take him off of that path until the end of the movie. Well, actually, the second act, when Harvey Dent runs afoul of the Joker. And the Joker manages in one fell swoop to kill Harvey Dent's, the love of his life, 
to maim Harvey with chemical burns all down one side of his face, to take everything that Harvey values away from him and make it look like it was Batman's fault all at the same time. He is, after all, the Joker, a criminal mastermind, bent on ruling the world. Harvey Dent, in that moment, gets taunted by the Joker. And the Joker gets into Harvey's thoughts. He gets into Harvey's emotions. He gets into Harvey's will. He gets into Harvey's spirit and his relationship with others. And he starts whispering lies. And Harvey Dent goes off the path of righteousness. Off the way of kindness and justice. And into the way of chaos. And becomes himself a supervillain in the DC universe. It's a dramatic story. You might be saying, eh, it's really nice, Scott, but as far as I know, the Joker, Harvey Dent, Two-Faced Batman, they're all fictional characters. What does this have to do with us? First of all, this is what it has to do with us. That in those three things, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God, the most important one is walk humbly with our God. You see, the reality is that all of you is corrupt. All of me is corrupt. We tend in our culture to want to fix the problems of our emotions by turning to our thinking in our head. The problem these days is people are just too driven by their emotions. We need to think rationally through these problems. The problem with that is your rationality is just as screwed up as your emotions. It really is. Look at the world around us. Our best thinking got us where we are today. It got us where we are today. No amount of our good thinking is going to fix our problems. Some folks say the other thing. You know, the problem in this world today is people are too committed to rationality and they just don't listen to their heart and love enough. Have you looked at what happens when people are driven by their emotions? How they can become ruled and dominated by their emotions and ruled and dominated by other people who manipulate their emotions? And then other folks, they want to go all the way in the direction of hedonism. If it feels good, do it. Just do what you desire. This this was the attitude celebrated in the 1980s. If you're a millennial, I know that was a long time ago. But I was still alive then. And there was a movie, another movie, Wall Street, where Gordon Gekko stood up and gave a famous speech. There was a speech that was modeled after a real speech given by a real Wall Street investment banker whose name I can't remember, but I know it wasn't Ivan Boski, but he was a friend to Boskies. I'm on a tangent. Gordon Gecko said, greed is good. It's a natural desire. And if all of us human beings just follow our natural desires, then we'll be okay. Everything will work out. None of these solutions work. None of these solutions work because Harvey Dent's problem was not that his thinking went bad and he needed to correct it with his heart or that his heart went bad and he needed to think more clearly about it. Let's get back to the real world to see what the real problem is and back to those physicians. Let's fast forward about 30, 35, 40 years through time. And that same culture at that same hospital, different physicians, same organization, most of the same administrators. But the culture had changed. And now the same administrator who told me about the first story now told me of how regularly physicians came to him and said, you know what? You know what? We could make more money if we code our office visits differently than we're coding them. We could charge our patients more, and it'll all be okay. 
It's not all okay. What they were proposing was actually illegal, although many hospitals and clinics do it. But the culture had changed. It hadn't changed in all ways. It was still the highest poverty area in the state of Ohio. This organization still, 20% of their patients were Medicaid patients. That may not, number might not mean anything to you, but that's, that's an extraordinarily high number. I, I, gotta, I, I think that Cleveland Clinic has about 5% Medicaid patients and won't take more than 5% is my understanding. University hospitals similarly. But this organization in a high poverty area was willing to take 20% Medicaid, but then the culture shifted and the doctors, physicians started saying, We can make more money. We just got to squeeze these people harder. And many of the administrators agreed. And costs went up. And quality of care went down. And people went without because they couldn't afford it. The problem wasn't in that culture that their thinking went bad. It wasn't that their emotions went bad. That's not true. The problem was those things were all bad. What wasn't going to fix it was thinking better or feeling better. It was saying we need to get back on the path with God. Walk humbly with our God. Walk humbly with our God. That's righteousness, steadfast. That means if we're following God down the path of life and God's God's turning to the right and we say, you know what, God, I don't like the people over there on the right. I'm not going there. I'm going to continue over in this direction instead. Then no matter what else has happened, we have gotten off the path that God is on. And that God is leading us on, no matter how good our thinking is, no matter how pure we think our heart is. Or if God's turning left and we say, I don't want to go over there on the left with all those people. Those folks are wackos. They're nuts. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm going to stay over here where I'm comfortable. We're off the path. We're no longer steadfastly following God, walking with our God. If we say, you know what, hey, I'm just staying right here in the middle. I'm not going to the left or the right. Wherever God turns, we follow. That's the essence of righteousness. That's the essence of righteousness. And that's what Paul is calling us to when he's talking about wearing the breastplate of righteousness. How does righteousness guard our thinking? How does it guard our heart? How does it guard our emotions? It means that none of those things will rule us. What will rule us is God. If the belt of truth is the governor that uh, Chip talked about last week that keeps us from going crazy and out of control, maybe the breastplate of righteousness is the GPS. And instead of Siri's fun voice or whatever that voice is on Google, it's the voice of God saying, turn left, turn right, stay here, slow down, speed up, follow me, follow me. How does all this help? How does righteousness help? How do we access it? Three things, right? Three things. Sometimes my fingers don't do what my head tells them to do. Three things we need to do to wear the breastplate of righteousness, to put on this piece of spiritual PPE. First thing we need to do is we need to stay connected with other people. Pastor Chip said it earlier. We cannot, you know, we cannot walk away from connecting with others. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. The Bible knows nothing, John Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary Christianity. 
we need to stay connected with other people. Jesus, you know, we have it developed in our culture, and it's a good practice. It's not a bad thing. You know, a quiet time alone, a personal quiet time, nothing wrong with that, but it's not nearly enough. Jesus didn't say, when you stop and pray alone, I am with you always. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I, in my name, I am there. We, if you want to stay connected with God, you have to stay connected with other people. You cannot isolate. Not mentally, not emotionally, not relationally, not physically. We need to be connected with others. And in a day of Zoom chats and cell phones and telephones and emails and text messages, there is no reason everyone can't stay connected with someone. We need to stay connected with others. We can't put on this breastplate by ourselves. We need other people to help us do that. In other words, we can't trust ourselves our thoughts, our emotions, our will, our desires to keep us on the right path. We need the voice of other people in our lives to check our emotions, to check our thinking, to check our desires, for them to say, you know what, dude, I don't know how, you, that might look and seem good to you, but that's nuts. It's crazy. You're going to hurt yourself and others. We need that. And we need to be that voice in other people's lives. We cannot do this alone. We cannot steadfastly follow God by ourselves. I can't do it. Maybe, maybe you're stronger than I am. And that's a real possibility. I'm not. I'm not near strong enough to do this, but I can barely do this with the help of a lot of other people. And, and often I'm still going, whoo, there's a pretty flower. <sighs> you know, wait, a snake. You know, and that's what happens. We see something that looks so good. And we're just drawn to it. Squirrel. We're drawn to it. And we need other people to say, Blevins, I need other people. Scott, what are you doing? We're going this way. Oh, yeah. Poison ivy. Snakes in the grass. We need other people. Stay connected. The second thing we need is we need the Bible. We need to know the Word of God. And I mentioned my grandmother when I was preaching a couple weeks ago and how she read the Bible through every year. I'm not kept up at that pace. But man, read the Bible. And, and don't worry if you don't understand parts of it. That's okay. It's probably that that part's not for you right now. If you, you read it and you're like, this makes no sense to me. Ten million begats. What does this have to do with anything? It's got important stuff to do with it. If it's not touching you, read it, but keep going. You know, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of everything I have said. He will remind you all of all that I've said to you. But the Holy Spirit can't remind you of something you've never heard. Read the Bible. Even if you don't understand parts of it, read it. Let the Word of God soak into you. And don't read it as a rule book. God did not do all of this. This, this amazing, vast universe, this incredible, minute detail of snowflakes and atoms and quarks, the, the incredible beauty of rainbows and flowers and other human beings that we're in relationship with. God did not come in the form of Jesus and live among us and suffer and die among us and rise again from the dead to give us a rule book. Folks, that's not what the Bible is there for. Even the law of Moses was not a rule book. It was God saying, if you want to follow me, this is the way. This is the way 
to be my people. It was guardrails to help keep them on God's path. Read the Bible to see what God thinks of as justice. Read the Bible and see what Jesus means by being kind and loving to others. And it has to do with things like taking up your cross daily and following him. It has to do with sacrificial giving of time and energy and resources. It has to do with not seeking after stuff that will protect and preserve us, but seeking after God, his kingdom, his way, his righteousness, and trusting God to take care of us. We need to read the Bible to understand how to love, how to pursue justice, how to be kind. What that means. We need to read the Bible. The third thing is this. We need God. Okay, that might be a little obvious at this point in the message. But you can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. Nobody can do this alone. I don't care how good you are, you can't do this alone. When you consider that folks like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Ruth, Naomi, Rahab, Mary, every single one of them sought God needed God. They recognized they weren't perfect. They recognized they weren't enough, not even close to enough. You cannot do this without God. And if you struggle with God, maybe you're watching and you like, I don't even know if I believe God exists. Just start with the first two. Connect with people that do believe God exists. Study the Bible and, and let the third one come in. It will. It will. But you need God. You need God. We can't do this without God. Look at where our best thing. Our best thinking gets us nuclear weapons. And yes, I know it's Memorial Day. I know that that what is it, fat boy or fat man and little boy or whatever they were, they, they brought a, an end to World War II more quickly than it otherwise would have come. But you understand the cost of that was tens of thousands of innocent lives. Women, children, non-combatants. And now decades of nuclear fear. That's where our best thinking gets us. You see where our best feeling gets us. Alienation, isolation, aloneness. You understand that children today have, are, have a level of anxiety that 50 years ago would have had them hospitalized and that's just normal today? That's where our best feelings get us. Our best, our best desires, <laughs> I mean, you don't even need me to say anything about that. Just watch the news. Where do our best desires get us? They get us into adulterous relationships. They get us locked into greed and covetousness that turns every other human being into a commodity to be bought or sold depending on how they'll benefit us. That's where our best desires get us. We got to have. And we're a mess. We're a flat mess. And how are you going to get God? It's a circle, folks. Connect with other people. In Jesus' name. And he'll be there. The breastplate of righteousness is what you and I need to guard our hearts because Satan is that snake in the grass. He's whispering into your ear and he doesn't care whether he uses your thoughts or your emotions or your desires to get you off the path. He just wants to get you off the path. 
And if he's got you off the path, he doesn't care if you try to fix your emotions with your thinking. He doesn't care if you try to fix your desires with your thinking. He doesn't care if you try to fix your thinking with your emotions. As long as you're not getting back on the path and following God. You need God. I need God. As I said before, Dr. King was one of the folks that has understood this the best. If there's anyone in the last hundred years that lived justly, loved kindness, and walked humbly with his God, it was Dr. King. I'm going to close with a prayer that he wrote. He didn't write it as a prayer. It was part of a speech that he delivered, but it was at the end of that speech, and it feels very much like a prayer. And so this is going to be our closing prayer here today. Let's pray together. God, grant that right here in America... And all over this world, we will choose the highway. A way in which men and women will live together as sisters and brothers. A way in which the nations of the world will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A way in which every person will respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. A way in which every nation will allow justice to run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. A way in which people will do justly love mercy, and walk humbly with God, a way in which people will be able to stand up and in the midst of oppression, in the midst of darkness and agony, they will be able to stand there and love their enemies, bless those persons that curse them, pray for those individuals that despitefully use them. And this is the way that will bring us once more into that society which we think of as the brotherhood of humanity. This will be that day when white people, people of color, whether they're dark brown or whether they're light brown or whether they're black, will join together and stretch out with their arms and be able to cry out, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.